Well, hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva. I'm Steven. Yes. Hey. It's a live audience in the recording. That's awesome. And we have an awesome special guest, Elisa Childers, uh, who we'll talk to in a moment. But, uh, you know, we talk about an organization every week on the podcast, Impact 360. If you've not heard of them before, they create awesome resources in Christian apologetics, especially for students. And so impact360.org. And they also have one and two week camps for students who are uh, rising freshmen all the way to graduating seniors. And these students can go to camp and learn about the Christian worldview, how to defend their faith. And it's so important as they go off to college. So encourage everyone, check out impact360.org. And you can use that promo code FREEMIND for $25 yes, off on their online courses. And you can take an online course yourself. So Elisa Childers, thanks for coming on FREEMIND again. Well, thank you for having having me. It's yeah. good to be back. Yeah, it's awesome. And Elisa was on the episode uh, a little while ago, and we talked about progressive Christianity. And uh, it's something that maybe not everyone has heard of, uh, not heard of on podcast or here. And so maybe you could give a brief uh, recounting of your experience with it and how you kind of found out what it was. And, and again, maybe just tell us what it is, too. That'd be great. Sure. Well, I had never heard of progressive Christianity when I first encountered it either. So I grew up in a Christian home uh, as far back as I can remember. I have loved Jesus. I loved the Bible. As early as I could read and write, I began reading and studying the Bible. It was just in my bones. I believed it, and I, I did my best to live by it. And I was kind of that kid that nobody would have worried about. You know, I was, like, I was the kid in youth group. They're like, she's going to be fine. She'll never doubt her faith. We'll worry about Johnny over here, but she, she's good. She's fine. And I, I really didn't experience any kind of doubt about Christianity uh, just all throughout my time growing up. I spent some time, actually Nerva and I met in the music uh, industry, we toured together a little bit, never experienced any significant doubt during that time either. But when I was an adult and I had come off the road and uh, my husband and I, we had our first baby and so I was kind of in that, in that phase of life where you're a little isolated from, from other people and because I had traveled so much, I hadn't really plugged into a church. And so I was doing some music and I was invited to come sing at a church here in Middle Tennessee and it was in this church that I was invited to be a part of a kind of very small, exclusive study group, discussion group. And so in the context of this class, the pastor of the church revealed to us that he was really more of an agnostic. He called himself a hopeful agnostic. And so what I thought was going to be a Bible study ended up being very similar to what kids experience when they go to college and encounter an atheist philosophy professor or an evolutionary biology class that just shakes their faith to the core. And it really shook me particularly because it was coming from my pastor that had earned my trust and, and my respect. And so uh, my husband and I ended up leaving the church, but after we left, I went through a really significant crisis of faith. That's when I started to, you kind of, ha, have you all heard the term deconstruction? People talking about deconstructing, deconstructing their faith. I didn't know that's what it was called, but that's what I went through where everything that I had ever believed about Jesus and about God and especially about the Bible had been sort of with precise, what I thought was precise logic and intellectual arguments that I had never been exposed to before. It was just dismantled and picked apart. And so I, what I was left with was sort of this cognitive dissonance. I, I know, but I don't know. I believe, but I don't believe. And so um, kind of the rock bottom moment was when I was sitting in my rocking chair singing hymns into the darkness, just 
really by faith claiming those words, but not really in my intellectual mind and at the bottom of my soul knowing if that was true. And so I, I begged God to help me, and that's when I discovered apologetics, and God really used apologetics to help rebuild my faith. But the progressive Christianity element comes into this because the church that we were at went on to identify a few years later as a progressive Christian community. And so what I realized was that all of those skeptical arguments that were being brought against the Christian faith were, were being brought by people who still called themselves Christians, but for the most part were accepting the atheist and the skeptical claims against Christianity, but still retaining, I don't know, a sociological connection to Jesus or some kind of a sentimental belief uh, in, in the Christian view. And so uh, I, that's when I began kind of studying it and, and reading their books and, and then started a blog and a podcast, and here I am. And I think it's, it's one of the most dangerous worldviews um, because it's sneaky and especially uh, deceiving to like high school and college age students. But like some of the tenets of faith, and maybe you can remember some, but I know like basically Jesus isn't the only way to God would be like a core belief of progressive Christianity. So the cross and Jesus Christ's sacrifice really doesn't mean a whole lot. It's just kind of one way again to heaven and things like that. So it's just accepting kind of thing. Yeah, it's very pluralistic. So they right. they wouldn't want to say that Jesus is the only way, and and so it's it's very pluralistic in that sense. Yes. So what so what brought you? You said you apologetics and stuff like that. You started the podcast. What have you been in seeing out there, kind of in the world that you are trying to address specifically? I know you did the interview with Lisa Gunger. Uh, you know, we'll talk about that in a second. But what are you seeing out there in culture, age groups, demographics that you know it's really who is it affecting really? Well, I am seeing it really affect the evangelical church at large. See, these are the same ideas that kind of burned their way through the mainline denominations uh, a while back, and and we are seeing decline in the mainline denominations. But it's it's now kind of trying to pass itself off as evangelical. Of course, that word is loaded and has you know we'd have to unpack that a little bit. But it's, it's made its way in, and so I, I'm seeing it affect young people. Uh, for example, when I teach apologetics at churches even, for young people, they'll get really excited about the scientific evidence for the existence of God and even the reliability of the Bible, but the minute you kind of touch on biblical sexuality or identity or anything like that, you can start to feel the hostility even among Christian kids. And so uh, a lot of it is adopting some of the views from culture and then saying, well, to be, a really, to be a good Christian, I would have to be kind and tolerant in the way that the world says those words mean. And so, yeah, it is sneaky in that sense. What are some of the major players and kind of crafters of the progressive Christian movement currently? And then could you distill maybe some of the central points of, broadly speaking, progressive Christianity? Yeah, it's been really hard to kind of pin it down what the broader points are because when I first started studying it, kind of what unites progressive Christians is that there aren't tenets that unite them. It's just kind of united around the fact that we don't have tenets or things that we're going to be dogmatic about. But they actually are, they do have some points I've discovered as I read their book. So major players would be um, people like Brian McLaren, uh, you may have heard of Tony Jones, Doug Paget, uh, more recently Jen Hatmaker is a huge figure in that movement. Uh, Rachel Lisa. Held Lisa Held Evans was kind Rachel of one of the Held huge Evans. players recently yeah. deceased. But yeah. yeah, so Rachel Held Evans, um, if you're not familiar with her, 
had written many books, uh, a progressive Christian, very, very smart. She's very articulate, amazing writer, writes in such an engaging way that draws you right into the story. And that's where it can be sneaky, too, because it really captures your emotions and your imagination. And, uh, and so a lot of people hadn't really heard of the movement, but she tragically uh, died due to a reaction to some medication she was given for the flu. And she's a young mom, two, uh, two babies. And so her death actually was trending on Twitter, which her book went to the New York Times bestseller list that week. So her, her death was really as polarizing as her life, really, in the sense that she catapulted these ideas into more people's hands through, through that tragic situation that happened. Uh, so, so those are some of the major players. I could probably think of more, um, but the tenets really, um, I, I narrow it down to the progressive view of the Bible, the cross, and the gospel. Okay, because there are a lot of views that are, you might find one progressive Christian that believes in the literal resurrection of Jesus, you might find another one that doesn't, and they're fine to be in unity with each other because it's really not about that. But there are some points that they're very united on. So the view of the Bible would be that, you know, historically, if you, if you look back even all the way back to the church fathers, sure, Christians have argued about interpretations, we've argued about what inerrancy means, we've argued about all this stuff, but generally speaking, Christians have historically believed that the Bible in its entirety is the Word of God, that it's authoritative for your life, that you, are, you have to submit yourself to the Word of God, and that it's inspired by God. And so largely in the progressive church, those words are either redefined, like yes, it's inspiring, but maybe not in the same way we mean it's inspired by God, you probably won't find one major progressive Christian player to say it's authoritative. So progressive Christians will disagree with Paul on this, or we, you know, Moses, if he wrote that, he got that wrong and, and things like that. So that's, there's kind of this very loose view of the Bible. And then the cross, um, the atonement of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is something that's very offensive in that uh, mindset. It's, if you think of Jesus dying on the cross as the son and the father being the one that is requiring that sacrifice then in the mind of the progressive Christian that makes God a cosmic abuser a child abuser so there's there's problems with the atonement and the cross and then the overarching gospel of course if you don't have the atonement if you don't have Jesus saving us from our sins you still have to have a cause, right? You still have to have a gospel. And so it becomes largely a works-based gospel. And, and it'll be couched in terms like bringing the kingdom of God to earth now and, and being the hands and feet of Jesus he, in the here and now, which of course, as Christians, we want to do those things. But there's really not a strong sense of the afterlife. There's not a, a sense of redemption from our sin. And, and so it becomes more about confronting systems of power and oppression and and uh, standing up for the oppressed which of course again we want to be doing those things but uh but but there's really no long-term kingdom of god type thing happening it's just what's happening here and now that's good yeah sorry. do you know whether um the, this is an american thing is it large here or is it has it spread worldwide it is spreading worldwide okay. Um, it's imported Started. from here for yeah. sure, and it's it's uh, it's really an affluent. Uh, it's a, it's an idea that fosters in affluence because you don't find, uh, like we were talking about Medine, who spent 18 months as a refugee in the Congo. There there were no progressive Christians <laughs> in the in the uh, refugee camps That's in the Congo. You know, there just weren't. They're 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 desperate. They're dependent on God. 
And so these ideas, I think, foster in affluence. And so, um, but yeah, but it does, it is getting imported. Like there are popping up kind of all over the world pockets of, of this. One of the things you said in your interview with Lisa Gunger was that there are no converts to progressive Christianity from other world religions. You don't see atheists coming. You don't see Buddhists coming. It's really just evangelical Christians moving away from historic Christianity. As you've been dealing with this, you're in this world, and you've been abused. And we're talking about <laughs> online. I was, I was like, dang, man. Oh, yeah. Real? It's, it's like that? She's taking a lot of right. heat. Lot <laughs> She's taking heat. a lot of heat. So y'all pray for her sister yeah. here. She out there doing her thing. But um, what are some of the wrong ways you've seen that evangelicals have responded to progressive Christianity? Boy, that is such a good question. Because I think we have to first diagnose the problem. Like you mentioned, uh, it might be overstating to say there are no converts. Uh, I've never met any, and I've never read any. When I'm reading their books, I've never come across one progressive Christian that said, hey, I was Buddhist, but I thought these ideas were great, and I became a progressive Christian. It just, I've never seen it. So largely, I think it's very safe to say that most progressive Christians are coming out of the evangelical church. There's a lot of valid reasons for that. They've encountered abuse. Uh, they've observed hypocrisy. They grew up in a Christian bubble where they were told, you know, the Lutherans are, we need to get the Lutherans saved, and the Baptists are trying to get the Charismatics saved. And, you know, and we're, we're they were growing, and then they meet a Lutheran, and like, hey, this is a nice person that loves Jesus. I think this is all crazy. And so they're almost growing up in cult-like sects of Christianity can cause that. So it's definitely a reaction uh, to the way that they were they grew up some abuses they saw in the church. And I think that that's, those are very valid criticisms that they brought in. It's just, I disagree with the conclusion that they came to. So, what was the question? <laughs> yeah, what are some of the wrong ways you okay, see people? Okay, so, so yeah, so with that foundation, um, some of the wrong ways uh, would be to just start making dogmatic statements. You know, when I was going through my crisis of faith, uh, I had, there was someone in my life who was just really like okay with it. And that made me feel safe to come to that person with my doubts and my questions. Like they didn't react in fear like some of my friends did. So the wrong way to, to react to a progressive Christian would be to act all defensive and afraid of the ideas that they're bringing or to, or to shut down the doubt. I think that's a big one. Uh, we we as, as Christians sometimes don't want to provide a safe place for people to walk through doubt. And we'll say things like, well, you shouldn't question that, or you shouldn't ask those questions, or just believe, just have faith. And, and that's a factory to make progressive Christians and atheists, really, because if, if they don't feel like there's a legitimate answer to their question, why would they continue? And, and so I think it's very important to let people know with calmness, with joy, and, and with no fear that there are really robust and, and deep answers to the questions that, that people are bringing. But the problem is, though, sometimes in that paradigm, they're, not, they're asking a question not to, not to land on an answer, but they're asking a question just to be, just to ask a question, and then they're gonna ask the next question. And so that's the one thing I experienced in the class, is that they would talk about this one question, and then I'd spend all week like trying to figure out, and then I'd get there the next week, and they didn't even care, they're on to the next thing. And I was like, well, I studied all week to figure out what I think about this. And so I think that, that they're, if they're asking questions seeking answers, 
But if not, then there's probably not much that can be done. Right. You know, like and Babylon Bee's been killing it, by the way, lately. If anybody falls. <laughs> the other day they said, Progressive Christian Church hosts the first Q&Q session ever. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's not going to be a dig. But, um, well, and that's a good point, though, because actually, like, Brian McLaren won't say answer. He'll say he'll do Q&R sessions, question and response. So he'll say, I'll respond, but I'm not going to try to be arrogant enough to say that I would have an answer because that's actually seen as arrogant to have any kind of certainty. Right, and that's a, that's a good point, you know, and I think we often make that mistake. We, th- we say if we know something, just the mere statement that we are saying we know something means we are arrogant. And J.P. Moreland likes to say that the antidote to arrogance is not stupidity. Right. It's humility, or not ignorance, yeah. you know, the yeah. antidote. So you have to combine knowledge with humility. That's what you see in the scriptures. But I think that's a good point, and I love how when you mention names, you're not like burn Brian McLaren's books. And you know, it, it, that's, I never get that vibe from you, but you sometimes have to mention people's names cause you're dealing with their, um, their writings and you want to correctly, um, present their point of view and then critique it. Now, many people in that world, they think that's combative and we'll come back to that maybe later. But I think when you're dealing with truth claims, you have to bring them to the surface. And I, one of the things I really respect about many of my favorite Christian apologists, and we like to make people aware of these guys because many people, unfortunately, in the church just aren't aware that they're even there. So I meet a lot of friends that kind of swing into progressive Christianity or outside of Christianity altogether that are like stumbling over 101 questions. And they're not even aware that there's good answers out there to these questions. And so just that's why we promote Impact 360 and all these organizations. But one thing we notice and that I notice, the good Christian apologists are never dogmatic like that. They, they say, here, let's read this book together. We'll take it seriously. We'll say where they have good points and where they have error, we'll point it out and we'll show you why it's error. Not Don't just take my word for it, but we're going to think through it biblically. And I've noticed that in this world. I don't know if you've noticed a, a similar thing, but I think what you said is true and good. Presenting it from a place of calmness and, and like, yeah, grace that we really do have some good answers to these major questions and they're they're out there if you'll do the homework not all of us can be scholars and we don't have time some of us aren't wired like that we don't have the time but there are people out there we can take advantage to help people that are thinking through these issues but i just want to reiterate to make it safe for them to to work through it but don't let it rest at yes the question yes the the mystery of god we punt on second down you'd never do that in football you know what i'm saying and that's the thing going on in the church right now i see is like oh you you stumble you you read two books and you're like well it's mystery it can't be solved i can't know anything about christianity it's either a leap into that or a leap into progressive christianity or a leap into something else and there are good answers and if you're that type of person that needs to kind of search that out I would just say do the hard work and get a good guide to help lead you through. I'm thinking of what is the the dark forest in Prince's Bride where there's unusually <laughs> large rodents. You need somebody to guide you through that forest. So, yeah. well, let me ask this: Have you seen? Have you seen? Have you been able to help anybody walk back from progressive Christianity to a more biblical faith, or do you see it more as preventative? Well, when I'm writing a blog post or I'm doing my podcast, the people that I have in mind are Christians who are encountering this movement. They sense something's wrong, but they can't articulate what it is. They, I've received quite a few emails saying, you gave a name to what I'm seeing, and I had red flags about, but I just I didn't know how to answer it. I, I couldn't quite 
you know, maneuver that path. And so that's my primary audience would be Christians, to warn Christians, to help Christians think their way through it, to not get swept up in it. And then the secondary person I'm talking to is the person who's maybe kind of pulled back and forth where, where they, they maybe went to a book study and they loved this book and the author is so funny and engaging and but something I don't know, but, but I really like these ideas, so maybe kind of pull them back a little bit. But generally, I'm not trying to convert the, the you know, Brian McLarens of the world. I'm, I'm trying to interact with what they're saying to help uh, the people who the Holy Spirit is kind of convicting about, about this movement. So I don't think I know of, I, I have had people email me that I helped them kind of seek more clearly, but I don't know if there's ever been like a hardcore progressive Christian that was like, yeah, I love what you're saying. and <laughs> I'm going to come yeah. back, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's good. I'm sorry. I'm dominating the questions here. Um, one question I have is when it's kind of a two part question. One, when you see somebody a post on social media, like sometimes I'll see somebody post, oh man, I'm loving these books. And it's like a progressive Christianity starter kit. Yeah. You know, they got <laughs> yeah. the five horsemen of progressive. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's a good idea to <laughs> engage that online? Um, how, is it case by case? Yeah. I mean, I just think it's case by case. It's, it's wisdom. It's, how far is this person into this? Like, um, I've had some friends when when Rachel Held Evans' book Inspired was was kind of gaining popularity, they would just post my review of her book in the comments, and just you know, if if somebody wants to read that and think it through, uh, then they can. But it it generally, I mean, the this is the hard thing about social media is that these questions that are being asked take a long time to answer. They are glaciers, these questions. When you get into the reliability of the Bible, it is a glacier. There is book after book after book after book you could read and just barely start scratching the surface of understanding how we got the Bible. You know, What kind of manuscripts do we have? What does that mean? And are, are there differences between the manuscripts? And then not even that, but did the people who wrote it write the truth. Is it historically accurate? Are these stories that they're telling things that happened in history? And so there, there's just, it's, you can't answer it in 300 characters on Twitter. Um, you know, and, I, and the hard thing is I've, I've pretty much made a rule for myself that I will not respond with sarcasm. I do in my head, I'll be honest, a little bit. But I just won't. I won't do it. I, I, I just, you know, it's like we can all win the internet with a snarky comment that makes the other person look stupid, but it's that's not. I don't think that's what Jesus would do, and so I try to disengage as best I can, sincerely. Um, but I, you know, sometimes I have that that temptation to make a secret Twitter page where I, <laughs> where my inner monologue Anonymous. says yep. everything. I've had that many times. Um, you know, growing up, I grew up too, like. You know, it was hard. I would I would have these questions. I would have these struggles. I'd go to somebody and I'd work the courage up to go to the travel and evangelist that was there that Tuesday night because we were there all week. Um, be like, man, I, I I'm just struggling with the Bible. He's like, that's Bible, son. What you mean, Bible? And you know, but looking back, I also know that not everybody has the time to dig into this stuff. And there are probably people sitting in this room that are parents and then you have grandparents who are like, man, we just, I didn't grow up in that context where those questions were even asked. And we all have a limited amount to what we can, what we can actually dive into in these glaciers. Even scholars, they're like, I'm a specialist in this thing. 
And um, so how, like, as parents and grandparents that are having kids or growing up in this culture, how can they help? I think the best thing that parents can do is that if your kid, because these kids these days are skeptical. It's the culture, you know, pool they're swimming in. My daughter is 11 years old, and she's asking questions about the Bible that I never thought of. I never thought of them. It was the, the class that with the progressive pastor that made me aware of the questions. I never thought of those questions. And she's already asking them at 11 years old. And so I think that the most important thing that Christian parents can do is not panic, not react in fear, but whatever your kid is asking, just say, let's discover the answers together. Let's study. Let's get a book. Let's look at both sides. Let's not just read one little blog post on the internet and decide that we're you know agnostic now let's let's go a little deeper and let's read together there's great resources i just contributed to a book called mama bear apologetics where we talk about all kinds of cultural lies and it's really actually it's not just for moms it's good for dads too but we we go through cultural lies and how to talk to your kids about those lies. We have conversation starters and discussion questions at the end of each chapter. So there are some really great resources out there that, that you can go through and maybe bring your kids along with as well. Awesome. Okay, now I think it's time to jump into the por portion. So let me just set it up real quick for those who don't know. There's a guy in the UK named Justin Brierley that runs a podcast called Unbelievable. I don't know if you guys ever heard of it. But he, he sets up debates between like leading thinkers in the world um, on opposite sides, atheist Christians. I, I think he's a Christian as far as I could tell. He is, yeah. Um, but he really has honest conversation. He doesn't shade it either way, and he lets these guys go at it. And it's amazing. And I... You got a call. So one of my favorite bands is Gunger. I don't know if you guys are familiar, and I love those guys. Um, recently, they have kind of moved away from from the at least historic Christianity. Michael moved into atheism and maybe Buddhism now or some something like that. Um, love their art, and but Lisa had recently written a book about her journey into this kind of. Uh, I guess a sub-branch of progressive Christianity. And Justin actually had you and Lisa discuss this back and forth on the, the Unbelievable podcast. And I just listened to it. It was really good. You did a great, great job. And I thought it was, um, man, it was, yeah, it was just really deep. If you get the chance to listen to that, I would highly recommend. I think y'all's portion is about 45 minutes to an hour of that episode. But first question I had, and then we'll jump into the content. Were you, when you got that call, how did you feel? Were you nervous about it? Oh, I was like, heck no. I'm not doing that. I'm not a debater at all. And there have only been two times when I accepted an, uh, an offer like that. And one was to go on the Bad Christian Podcast, which is a progressive Christian podcast. Um, I had written an article called Five Signs Your Church Might Be Heading Toward Progressive Christianity. And they hated it so much, they asked me to come on the show. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit, I don't know, I just thought, okay, I'm going to do it. And so I went on that show. Um, and then when he suggested a conversation with Lisa, I mean, at first I was like, I really don't want to do this, uh, but I just kind of just felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to do it. And so I, I did, I, I, I did, but yeah, my initial thought was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to debate. I, I'm right. not, that's not my wheelhouse at all. How do you, like going into that, that day, are you just like, oh man, this like, yeah, how are you I feeling? Did, yeah, I felt sick to my stomach. Yeah. I was really nervous. I had read her book, so I felt kind of prepared in that I knew where she was coming from. So yeah. I, I didn't feel like I was walking in blind, but yeah, it was that's, very nervous. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. I was just, me personally, I wanted to yeah. know, but go ahead, brother, what you got? 
I thought you did an awesome job. You kept pushing the idea that uh, Lisa was making truth claims mm. and objective truth claims, and then on the same coin, claiming that oh, I don't, but I don't care about this stuff, and it's whatever. And so, I'm trying to think of a specific example. She talks about the Bible a lot, and I found it so interesting that you asked her towards the end of the interview, "Where do you get these ideas about love or about how we're the?" like uh, the hands and feet of God or whatever, like where do you get these ideas? And she basically said, the Bible. Yeah. Like how do, you, how do you press someone to realize like, this, like you are pulling from the Christian worldview and making truth claims. And it, she, did, she did a great job of kind of skirting it, you know what I mean? And she also made the, the claim of like, ah, it just doesn't matter to me anymore, which seems like this like cavalier polite, like, oh, I just don't want to fight with anybody, yeah. which is again, one of those things that progressive Christianity is like, we just accept, so we don't have to tell anybody they're wrong. Yeah. Um, so, I, and again, you, you did it on the, on the show, but maybe you can kind of tell us like, you kept pushing on her. Can you explain that process again, like trying to, that objective truth claim thing. Well, and progressive Christians, they have no problem telling me I'm wrong. Right, <laughs> They yeah, do exactly. it all the time. Right, right. But that's kind of the, the conundrum there, isn't it? Because, Contradiction. Yeah, because um, first of all, Lisa was incredibly warm and kind. Yeah, and like, yeah. you know, she, you're just talking to her like, we could totally be friends, you know. And so... Um, and just a very kind and gentle soul too. So, so it was. I was trying to press without being a jerk. You know, that was kind of the right. the goal of the day. But uh, she she did. She made lots of very dogmatic statements about who God is, how God works in the world. She she said at one point, all paths lead to the same well. And you know, meaning that's that pluralistic idea that you know Buddhists are finding God their way, Hindus are finding God their way, Muslims are finding God their way, we're finding God our way, but it's all going to the same God, and, and we're all going to be together. It's it's just all you know going to the same place. And so I, I kind of tried to gently point out, you know, because she had just said previously, I think to that, I'm not here to change anybody's try to change anybody's mind about anything i don't you know you can believe whatever you want to believe but then she makes this statement that's basically saying that my view of god is wrong because of course christianity is by nature exclusive jesus said i'm the only way you know i am the way no one comes to the father but through me so for someone to say all paths lead to the same well and i say only one path leads to the well then well we're both making objective claims about reality. We are both making truth claims about the way God works in the world, who he is, uh, who's a part of his family. We're, all, we're both doing that. And so, uh, yeah, I, I was just trying to point out that every time, and, and this is the kind of the thing that, that apologetics will help with if you, if you study it a little bit and kind of get it into your blood a little bit, is you'll begin to see that when people say things like, well, that's just true for you. Mm. Well, is that just true for you? You know, there is no truth. Well, is that true? And you start to look for truth claims that sound like they're not truth claims, but they actually are. And, and you can even in your own mind begin to kind of dissect some of that stuff and say, well, actually, when, when somebody says there is no truth, that is a truth claim about reality they're making. Right. Uh, and they can't escape that. And so the burden of proof is on them mm. to... to justify saying there is no truth which of course it just takes one question to dismantle it because if it's true that there is no truth then that's not true so it defeats itself and a part of the interview too you start talking about the resurrection and lisa even says i believe jesus christ existed and died on the cross but the resurrection we can't know 
uh, because it's a theological claim. And this is Bart Ehrman, the New Testament scholar. He also says when it's a miracle or when it's something supernatural, it's a theological claim and we can't prove it and we can't know it. And Lisa talked about how we only have our own experience of reality and so we can't like prove. It's just us and we can't push that on anyone else. How do you respond to someone? Because again, we know like we're in this room together. <laughs> it's an objective truth. We're all sitting here. Uh, and it's not like I'm experiencing it and you're not. So how do you break that down for someone who doesn't really understand like whether it's my consciousness experiencing this or yours, like there is an actual truth out there. You know, it's like if you go to the bank and say, I'd like my $100,000 and they're like, mm, you don't have that here. It's like, my truth says I do. They're not really going to give you anything. So how, how could you, how do you address that idea of that relativism basically? Yeah. Well, I, uh, relativism is obviously the culture we're in that, that is the language everybody speaks. It's, it's just the dominant idea is especially in the, in the realm of spirituality and morality. So, if you go to the average person and you say, you know, two plus two equals four, they're going to agree with you. If you say, well, if you go to the bank and you expect to have the money in there you put in, they're going to agree with you. But there is, there has been a shift in the culture where anything having to do with spirituality has been relegated to that relativistic realm. So there's like, I like chocolate ice cream or I like vanilla ice cream, or you might say chocolate ice cream is the best. I might say vanilla is the best. We're, we're both making a truth claim, but that's subjective because there's no truth about that outside of our own brains. And so what people have done is relegated uh, spirituality to the realm of what ice cream flavor you like the best. The problem with that is that every religion makes truth claims that contradict the others. And so as we know, the Christian, and this is, I said this in the podcast, Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus being a real event in history. If the resurrection of Jesus did not happen in history, I am not gonna be a Christian anymore. I'm not gonna try to say I'm a Christian. I'm not gonna try to, try to live a Christian life. I'm just gonna go do what I want because even Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. You're still in your sins. Now, if you think about all of the other religions in the world, I don't know if you can think of one that makes a claim like that. You know, you've got some guy sitting under a tree getting a revelation, drumming up some followers to follow his teaching. Uh, all, of the, all of the other religions and philosophical systems are ideas. They're, they're ways to live. They're practical things. But Christianity is based on an event that if it didn't happen, it's not true. And so that's why Christianity can't be relegated to the ice cream category because Jesus either did raise from the dead in reality or he didn't. And our faith depends on it. Do you ever do you ever get worked up about those coexist bumper stickers? Just <laughs> well, I mean, I just I start thinking too deeply about it. I'm mm. like, yes, we should coexist, but, but what does that mean? What does coexist <laughs> mean to you? Exactly. I have a question. So, just in case somebody's in the room that has never heard the word relativism, um, is is if you could if you could explain that. Also, do you feel like your conversation with Lisa? was on a higher level what we all should prepare for on an entry level? Oh, that's a good question. So what was the first one? Well, just, you know. Oh, relativism. We, we, yeah. We, so, yeah. So relativism is a view of truth, right? We all talk about truth. Well, the definition of truth is an idea, a belief, a statement that corresponds with reality. That's what truth is. But the relativist would say, no, that's not what truth is. Truth is what you're experiencing. This is Lisa's view of truth because she writes about it in her book, is that we build constructs in our mind 
and it's how we experience reality. So I'm experiencing this meeting tonight, and my truth is, is what I see and what I get out of it. Your truth is what you see and you get out of it. But the problem with relativism is that something's happening here in reality. Now, you might have a different idea about what's happening than I do, but one of us is going to be wrong then. You know, if I say, uh, you know, a, a chicken hatched from an egg over there, and that's my truth, well, that either happened or it didn't tonight. And so there is a reality. And so rather than, and this is what I was saying in the, in the podcast, is rather than us just saying, okay, your truth is your truth, and if you saw a chicken, great, and if I saw this, great. Rather than that, adjusting reality to what we thought, why don't we try to adjust our thoughts and our, our perceptions, adjust our perceptions to line up with reality? And we're not all going to get it right all the time, but if that's the goal, then that's kind of the opposite of relativism. My heart is like, if someone's here and hearing this for the first time that, wow, we need to all get into apologetics or I'm going to be freaking out because kids are going to be getting all this information and the church is falling apart. So how do we, on an entry level, I feel like, should be aware of there's going to come a time where we'll have a conversation like you had with Lisa, which is more of a higher level because you guys are both leaders, but where can one start or what, what, what sh what's the nugget we should leave with today based on this conversation? Well, yes, uh, that's a really good question. And I would just say start just, just little by little. There's a great book called Tactics by Greg Kokel, and it's not particularly an apologetics book, but it's really how to have a conversation, how to ask really well-placed questions to get the other person thinking about the claims they're making. It's a really helpful book that I've utilized. I, I even asked one of his questions, you know, uh, how did you come to that conclusion? I asked Lisa that question. That's like his, one of his main tactics in that book is, is to, to get to the deeper thing that they're trying to say. So tactics is a great book. To get, um, I, I'm currently writing a book about progressive Christianity that is coming out fall of 2020 on Tyndale, and so uh, that's going to be walking the reader through my journey of doubt, but at the same time, kind of refuting the progressive theology. It's it's and and you know one thing I always kind of feel obligated to say when we say progressive Christianity, it's we're not make that's not a political label. It's a theological label. Now politics, of course, get involved. But I'm not talking about progressive in the progressive political sense that you might hear that word. That, that movement is a, it's a very theological movement that, of course, their politics are affected by it. But, um, but yeah, so, so maybe you know, pick up my book when it comes out. There's not really a lot of resources on it right now because it's just it's growing so fast. Yeah. So I work at a large church in Tampa, and I like asking this question to apologists, Christian apologists. What do you think the church at large, especially the American church, needs to start doing or do differently in relation to apologetics or training or discipleship to start kind of revealing these things and teaching the younger generation how to approach this? What can the church do itself? This, this might not be the answer you're looking Hello. for, but read the Bible. Well. <laughs> Preach! Preach, Read Preach. the Bible. I mean, I mean, come on, seriously, Ooh. right? There's so a good. great podcast. So There's a great podcast called The Bible Recap. It's a lady named Tara Lee Cobble. She's brilliant. You, you read through the Bible in a year chronologically. You listen to her five-minute recap. You will understand 
Leviticus, like you never understood it before, okay? Because, you know, we do. We read numbers in Leviticus. We're like, what did I just read? She will help you understand what you just read. And I, I think biblical literacy is the most important thing because, honestly, when I look back at my time in the class, I had never studied formally theology. I'd never studied apologetics or logic or any kind of church history. I just knew, but I knew the Bible. I studied the Bible. And so when he would take the Bible out of context or when he would twist the meaning, that's when I felt like it was level ground because I knew the word and it was the word, honestly, that got me through. Now, I had to work my way back to it because he kind of successfully knocked the legs out from under it as far as making me doubt that what we had was actually God's word. That's a whole other thing. But yeah, just just read the Bible. Teach the Bible again. Sermons need to be on the Bible again. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, I wish we had a ton more time. We're running late tonight. So I, w I do want to do some time for Q&A. Uh, if you have to bounce out now, it's fine. But we're just going to do 10 minutes, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cut it off at 9.10. Is that cool with you guys? And if you don't have any questions, it's all good. We'll just ask for more questions. But um, if anybody has a question, actually, just sit in your seat and yell it, and we'll repeat it in here so we get it for the podcast. So. What so, is worship like at a progressive church? That is a very interesting question, and that's going to differ. Uh, the church that I was at, uh, they sang a lot. Like I, in fact, this is interesting you would ask this, because at my current church, we just sang a song on Sunday that we had sang in the progressive church, and I was just thinking, oh, man, what they meant by those words and what they mean by these words. They will not, you will not find a lot of hymns, and if you do, they will change a lot of the words. Uh, the, the church that I was at changed Amazing Grace. You know, they don't want you to think of yourself as a wretch, so they change that to something else. I've heard, uh, this is my story, this is my song, you know, praising my Savior all the day long, changed to what is your story, what is your song? <laughs> you know, can we still be friends and get along? And th I mean, I'm not joking. This, this, so things get changed a lot. Um, but then there are more like mainline type progressive churches that will still do liturgies and they'll sing, they will sing some hymns, but it's more like this kind of quaint, cu like curious kind of thing they'll sing because it's part of their heritage, but they don't really mean those words because they wouldn't want to be singing about the atonement in the way that our hymns frame it. And just, just a quick comment on that. I've, I've heard this from another apologist. We're in a culture where you can't disagree and it not being construed as hating them. And to use the illustration, we have all had friends and relatives, maybe even close family members, who are doing something damaging to themselves that we wholeheartedly disagree with and we know they are doing something wrong. And we may even tell them, like, you need to stop doing this. This is wrong. But that does not we mean we don't love them. Honestly, if we didn't love them, we wouldn't care and we wouldn't try to tell them to change. But it's because we love that we want to spread the truth. And I think kind of that's what Lisa was getting to is like, I love, so I don't want to push beliefs on other people. But if Christianity is true, like we believe it to be, then we need to, because it's the most important message that we can communicate to anyone in this world. And so it is not, it, to disagree, it is not to hate. And, and also maybe to point out that, like when Lisa made that statement, she was telling me I was wrong. Now, I right. don't think in her mind that's what she was doing. But maybe exposing that, like, you know, when, when you're saying you disagree, and also just from my experience with the progressive world, um, it's, a, it's brutal. There is, there's no grace. There's no, there's no mechanism for atonement. I mean, you, it's like one and done. You, if you mess up, you know, if you say the wrong thing, you're, you're ex, ex, 
excluded from that world in the name of tolerance and the name of an inclusion and and so that's that's why you know it, like we've seen I, if you've all seen the the young man forgiving the the cop that shot her her brother and and I if you go on progressive Twitter and you know I mean progressive in the progressive Christian but also the kind of the liberal secular sense too they're mad about it they're mad that he's forgiving her because she doesn't deserve forgiveness but but you know as Christians that's grace that's him showing I mean he said I want you to give your life to Christ how could you ask for a better example of a Christian than that but they they don't see they don't see grace and love as 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 those things are they redefine those words grace now means you know just being nice and love means like you said affirming everything but the problem is is you can't because you're going to be against somebody and as you pointed out they they've got love tolerating everything unless you disagree with their their dogmatic view of the world yeah you know the the um importance of definitions these days because words are so are used in so many different ways, and now there's whole categories like systems of thought that use words in different ways than we think of them um, customarily. And so I think two of the tactics questions that they teach at Impact every year is, what do you mean by that, and how did you come to that conclusion? And, you know, you don't have to dig too deep into anybody's statements, because most people just haven't thought that far down on them to help them discover that's what i love jesus was so good at asking the right questions and and i did notice you did that in that podcast i was like ah, oh, colombo tactic but um but you know it, it is it's just good conversation like if you're trying to really understand where somebody's coming from okay when you say that word what do you what exactly do you mean by that and then when they explain it, if you, you want to ask them, what, did they, what are the walls that that roof is standing on? What, how did you come to that conclusion? And through that process, you can begin to tease out what they mean by love. And typically, if once they have a definition, you can apply it to cases where they know that this is love, but it doesn't follow by their definition, and you expose the absurdity of what they're trying to claim. And so that's what J.P. Moreland used to always uh, say, too. Uh, he would say... Everybody's a relativist till you find out what they really care about. And then you press them in that area, and they will suddenly become a moral realist or objectivist. And so that's part of the thing. If you know someone, you, you kind of just want to walk them there gently, and then you just back off and let them, <laughs> let them self-destruct. And because ultimately you want their mind to line up with reality because it's going to go better for them in that way. So that's what I would add to that. What did you have, uh, Steve? I'm curious about strategies for dealing with the guilt trip well I mean that's the question right that's the thing that's that's always difficult and that's why I'll, I'll always you know try to go for definitions because when people say oh you're not affirming you're not inclusive that's implying that our churches are like shutting our doors to certain people which I'm sure there are some churches doing that, but in my experience, with most of the Christians I've encountered, they're not shutting the doors to certain people. They're inviting everyone in. They are inclusive in that sense. They are affirming that every person is made in the image of God and has inherent dignity and worth because of that. And so maybe focusing on some of that, the beauty of some of that, and saying, but we invite everyone 
to repent of their sin and to follow Jesus. And we don't define what that is, God does. And, and so even passing it off to Jesus is, works good, you know, especially with uh, biblical sexuality and things like that, when people kind of want to pin you down, what do you think? Well, I'm a follower of Jesus, so what Jesus says about everything is what I say about everything in reference, you know, Matthew 17. And, and so it, it's, it, it takes finesse in this culture but there are going to be people. It doesn't matter what you say. Mm-hmm. They're they're gonna like like that's what always blows my mind. Is I'll write these articles with like so much love in them. Like if you read my uh, review of Lisa's book, I just felt so much love for her while I was writing that. But I was trying to expose some things. But there was this one article I'd written. I think it was for the Gospel Coalition, and for some reason, all of the progressive like big wigs got hold of it because it was gospel coalition and so they were just oh they had such a fun day but um but this one particular guy was just mocking me and mocking me and just laughing at me on twitter and just kept posting it laughing and then i found you know and then like a few months later he's at wild goose fest giving a workshop on how to deal with bullying and you're just like how can you not see but you know it's so so yeah And another quick word on that, I think usually that guilt trip comes because they ask, why do you think that this is wrong, or why do you believe? And so uh, there's an interview with Billy Graham and Woody Allen, it's like from the 1960s or whatever, and Woody Allen asks him the same question, and Billy Graham says, it doesn't matter what I think, and it doesn't matter what I feel, I base my morality in the Bible, and so if you want to talk about our standard for morality, let's talk about that all day, and I'll point you to the Bible, and we can talk about why I think it's valid, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think, and what I feel is right and wrong, I follow the Bible. So let's talk about that. Well, and we also have to remember too, just to, to add a little end cap to this, is that when we're talking with people or asking questions, especially about identity, is in our culture, uh, you know, biblically speaking, our identity is that we are made in the image of God, that God created us as, as human beings. But our culture has shifted identity onto uh, who you're attracted to. And so when, so we have to understand that when we say we believe X is a sin or such and such goes against God's word, what they're hearing is you are, are this or you, not what you're doing or, or what you struggle with, but it's become an identity category, whereas biblically it's not an identity category. And so I think that we have to have some compassion, too, to realize and maybe try to untie some of those knots and realize that people are hearing when you say, you know, the Bible says this is a sin, they're, they're hearing you say you are a sin. You are, uh, you know, so they take it, it, it goes deep into their identity as a person. Yeah, we, we interviewed a, a gentleman by the name of Christopher Yuan who talked about holy sexuality. And it's a really good book. If you have friends who are um, having same-sex attraction or want to just clarity on that, even as Christians, um, he talked about, um, he goes in history and says that I think during the days of Sigmund Freud, they did a lot of research and put out a lot of material that um, went into mainstream that Um, said your sexual practice now is your identity and that's when that became okay this is who I am but he talks about holy sexuality how we are all called to live holy single if you're single purity if you're married faithfulness and but all because you can be heterosexual and still 
living in sin. So these titles, they fall short of the biblical um, explanation of who we are, and we're created in the image of God, and we're all called to live holy unto the Lord. So great book. It's called Holy Sexuality by um, Brother Yuan. So. Well, that's an interesting question, too, because um, a lot of, now, I don't know what they would say publicly, but the progressive Christians that I've interacted with really don't pray in any kind of a meaningful sense anymore. There might be a sense of like a contemplative, meditative kind of thing that happens. Um, there, there's, there's, you're not going to find like prayer meetings in the progressive church where they're petitioning God for things. They generally won't be asking God for things uh, in, in the way that we might like, you, you know, they, but, but what was interesting is when Rachel Held Evans was sick, she, there was like two weeks where she was, um, fighting for her life essentially. And I saw on, I'm, I'm kind of in a few different echo chambers. And so in my progressive Twitter echo chamber, there was a lot of prayer happening. There was a lot of people almost like you, they sound like old time evangelicals right now when they were praying for her. And so I thought that was very interesting because I, that's the first time I really saw that emerge in that world. Um, and so I don't know what, what was going on with that, but um, generally speaking, I don't think there's really, it, it, would be, it would be more like I've heard progressive pastors say, this is prayer. Like, God is here, we're talking, so this is prayer. And uh, again, gets redefined, yeah. This could be an extreme example, but I think Union Seminary, did you see that thing that yeah. blew up where they were, I Repenting guess, confessing to plants? To plants. Yeah. So that, <laughs> they were <laughs> confessing their sins to plants. So that, and that's I know that, like, to us, version. that sounds kind of shocking, but when you're really submerged in that world, it's like, yeah, it, it, it makes, makes sense in perfect there. Perfect sense, yeah. Because the earth and panentheism yeah. and we are God and it is God. And yeah. so that, that's one form that it can take. Extreme examples. Did you have something back there, Dean? Yeah, I was uh, going to say, and just in visiting some uh, local churches, um, I, you, you asked, um, what can we take away from this? There's a feeling when they have formal things going on in the church, like the Lord's Supper, uh, for example. Um, I, I think I've experienced a progressive church because the Lord's Supper didn't look anything like what was familiar to me. It was a, hey, here's some refreshments on the side here. You know, just take and enjoy them. And they're like, this is the Lord's Supper. There's no presentation. This is not, there's no talk about this is my body, this is my blood. You know, drink this in remembrance of me, nothing like that. So uh, I think when you get a feeling that something's off, maybe your, your antenna should go up and say, I need to probably research this. That's a really great point. He said, you know, when your ante antennas go up, you need to research it. What I was thinking of when you were talking was Rob Bell gave a talk uh, a few years ago called Everything is Spiritual. And in that talk, he basically made fun of atonement theory by saying God is less grumpy because of Jesus. You know, that's atonement theory. And everybody had a big laugh. But then he went on to talk about the Eucharist, to talk about the Lord's Supper. And he, he tried to make a case that for the earliest Christians, the Lord's Supper really wasn't about the blood of Jesus cleansing us from our sin or remembering his body and, and his blood. But he said it was about celebrating our shared humanity. He literally made it about something completely different than what it was it was about, and so so again they'll they'll co-opt certain practices like 
even, I don't, I haven't seen a ton of baptism, but th I could see them doing it in that way, but there, some of them will do the Eucharist in kind of a, this is, this is our shared humanity, we're going to celebrate that, and the, the divine in you, and you celebrate the divine in me. I've known of progressive churches doing Ash Wednesday with stardust, saying, with glitter, you know, saying from stardust you came, and from stardust you'll return, just very, very uh, mystical kind of things. So you guys as artists, uh, while you probably can't statistically say that artists are more susceptible to progressive ideas than anybody else. No, we can't. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly, maybe you could speak to like, there are certainly maybe some vulnerabilities and alluring vulnerabilities of the creative arts, artists, performing arts, that progressive ideas are just going to feel really good to. So maybe you see, I'd love to hear what you would say to other artists about, hey, this is a banner we played before you guys that... This is why this is going to be such a vulnerability for people in the arts. I feel like we're, it's such a feeling culture. And so art is sort of like the romantic era. Just do what you feel, desire, and just, if you can make art from that place, you're a hero. Mm -hmm. And truth and tradition, ah, uh, you know, let's just throw that off. And so sometimes I see that in worship world. I do, and with lyrics, you're like, Huh, that's a very interesting way. So, but that's my experience. Yes, yes, very susceptible because it's a feeling culture and we want to gather, we want to feel God. We don't want to learn of God as much as we want to experience something and that's on the throne right now. And so you can have a worship experience and worship worship and and never have oh. put your mind on Christ the whole time. Yes. That's my experience. Yeah, the other day I said uh, the fields are the the uh, the harvest is ripe, brother, for apostasy. <laughs> <laughs> Such a class. So be ye ready. Um, but you know, I, I I've, I've seen that for a while because I I knew my own struggle, and I knew what was out there, the ideas, and I said, you know what? I was just watching people. Somebody once said, I think it was uh, William Lane Craig said, we raise our kids up, we send them off to college with no armor, and then plant them in the middle of a war. And um, I just want to say one thing. I have a, a college uh, mentee here, and we keep in touch, and I've walked with her through high school, and she said to me on the phone, everything I've ever been taught and believed is being challenged on this campus. Yeah. I'm sorry. Just want to interject that. No, that's good. And um, you know, as as artists, I think, like she said, we can just kind of get we can, and, and this is probably in any field, I would imagine. But we we spend more time like watching our favorite YouTube mainstream artists, and we're kind of following it, and we just spend all our time over here. We're being indoctrinated at a presuppositional level all the time, not knowing it, and then we're not developing the skills to see uh, I, bad ideas. And John Stone Street always says, "Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims." And you can kind of see people being set up to not have the armor to combat these bad ideas that were coming up. So we've, I've, I've seen that. Yeah. This that's part one of the communities we're in. I do see that often, and I and I've had a heart to try to reach out to the artist community to say, man, just add the foundations. Because I think Ravi Zacharias Ministries, they have a high emphasis on the arts. But they and, and C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, yeah. these guys. I mean, they they took these yeah. deep things and let it splash out through their art in such incredible ways and that's what 
I mean, even if we nobody ever knows us, if we could pass this on to other artists and get them thinking from that perspective, I think that'd be a huge win. Well, and I was just going to say too, I think it's really true, and it's been the seeds of it have been growing for a long time. Because when I was in the music business, the Christian music business, we were at some event in the summer. It was a huge event. I can't even remember. They all run together, <laughs> but it was a radio event, and so there were several bands there, and a major Christian band very popular band was being interviewed and somebody noted that their lyrics had changed a bit in the last few years and i remember one of the the members of the band saying well we just feel like if we can point people to a tree then the tree will lead them to god and i remember i was we were on after them and i was like that really bugs me, man, you know? And so I, I just, you know, because I just got this thing in me, I had to say something, but I was just kind of like, made a joke, like, you know, you can point them to trees, but I'll keep talking about Jesus, you know? Because, but I think it's because they don't want to be offensive. And so if they can say, well, I'm just going to point people to a tree and, then, and they'll find God that way, you know? And, and, and I think that it, the seeds of it have been kind of coming on for a long time through not wanting to be offensive and wanting to be accepted by the world, you know? You mentioned being, you mentioned being open to doubting, um, mm. and I've, I've got young girls too. But one of the biggest challenges I've had this year is being open to doubting um, in my friends who are late forties, early fifties, who never had the chance to ask questions or never thought of them. Mm. Like you said, I mean, I just thought never thought of them because of the Christianity they walk in. Um, what are some thoughts about? how to engage that, you know, because I, I find it a different environment than with the kids, where they are asking uh, questions. It's kind of like, this is what I believe, I just want to get it out there, everybody good. Yeah. Then, yeah. you know, and I found, my, I found myself kind of just saying, okay, if they're believers, the Holy Spirit is in them, yeah. and just really spending a lot of time praying with the Holy Spirit, but other thoughts about that. Well, I think what you're putting your finger on is a very real thing because um, it was, I think Dan Wallace, who's a textual criticism scholar, pointed this out, that things that were only kind of known in the scholarship world 20 years ago, Bart Ehrman starts writing his books on lay level and they're very inflammatory and just very persuasive. And so all of the, a lot of information that really was just kind of known, even conservative scholars knew the information, but they didn't want to confuse people, so they weren't, it's all just been flooded into the internet. Oh, the Bible has, there's mistakes, and you know, people will say all kinds of things like that. And so, like you said, even people in their 40s, 50s, who never even thought of these questions are going, oh my gosh, like, is the Bible accurate? Like, I've based my life, I mean, that's what I was going through. I've based my life on this book. I mean, is that pastor right, that what's sitting on my lap is different than what they wrote? And so I think that, I, I think just kind of what we've already said here is just patience. And I think when people are going through these things, they need somebody to listen. I needed somebody to listen without being like, stop, you know, you're, you're, you're falling away. And I really wasn't. I just, I, I needed answers and I needed to process it. So I think people need to process things and it can be scary. But um, if they're open, and like you said, if the Holy Spirit's tugging them, there are so many great resources, so many, like the, the conservative scholarship has caught up in the, in the sense that all the liberal scholarship flooded the lay level, and now the conservative scholars have caught up by saying, yes, it's true there's differences in the manuscripts, here's what that means, and here's how we can, and, and so there's an answer for all of it. 
and uh, and those resources are are catching up. I think, you know. Yeah. One of the things you said on the podcast with Lisa too is that um, faith isn't the opposite of doubt; it's the opposite of unbelief. Yeah. And so you can have doubt and faith, and it's it's a tension to manage. You it's actually a, can't have doubt unless you have faith, because hmm. you're doubting what you believe. And so, right. so I think that's a problem too in the church. People think, oh, doubt is a sin. Well, it's not. Unbelief right. is a sin. And and so if someone's doubting what they believe, that that can be a beautiful way to strengthen their faith. Like I know that I walk with a bit of a limp now. I I think you know, like rest, like do the wrestling with God kind of thing. But my faith is so much deeper and richer and stronger even than it than it ever was before. And and those doubts still are there sometimes. And there are things that bubble up even in the morning when I'm tired. I'm like, are we all nuts? Like we believe this guy's coming back on a flying horse, you know? I mean, come on. But but you know, it's like, but yes, he is. You know, he's coming back on a flying horse. <laughs> And maybe, maybe one more practical thing, too, is Jesus always answered the religious leaders with questions. He always questions. And so with those friends and people in your circle, maybe just use the questions that uh, we've been talking about. What do you mean by that? And how did you come to that conclusion? And even if the conversation doesn't lead to some tremendous revelation on their part, it'll give you some insight into maybe who they're reading, who they're listening to, what ideas that they're experiencing. And then you can go back and maybe look up the Christian resources for those and address it at a later time. And if there's any questions about the Bible, it's probably coming from Bart Ehrman. And so there's a website called, is it Answering Bart Ehrman? I can't remember, but it's a bunch of conservative scholars that have come together to answer his ideas in short little videos. So um, a lot of times people get exposed to Bart Ehrman and then they, they kind of go, oh my gosh, you know, everything's a house of cards and it's really not, so. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much, man, for being a part of this panel and uh, engaging with us. And thank you, Elisa, for coming on the Free Mind Podcast again. Yeah.